You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville. For their support, we'd like to thank Nevada County Registrar of Voters announcing vote-by-mail ballots that will be mailed out on October 5th. Online voter registration available at registertovote.ca.gov. And the Registrar of Voters encourages participation in the democratic process by voting. Also, Weiss Landscaping, introducing low-maintenance, fire-safe outdoor living space design and installation, utilizing ornamental concrete, natural stone, and composite hard surfaces. Information, goweisshardscaping.com. After the NPR headlines and local weather, we'll have this week's Water News with Steve Baker, an updated report on the coronavirus situation from NPR, also national native news, and a commentary with Jim Hightower. But first, NPR headlines. From NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The two vice presidential contenders are campaigning in Wisconsin today to mark the Labor Day holiday. Democratic nominee Kamala Harris met with union workers, business owners, and the family of Jacob Blake, the black man shot in the back by police in Kenosha last month. And Chuck Kernbach of member station WWM reports Vice President Mike Pence was focusing on jobs. Vice President Pence spoke to employees of an electric utility in La Crosse. He said nearly half the jobs the U.S. lost during earlier stages of the coronavirus pandemic have come back. And that, that includes 200,000 Americans right here in the state of Wisconsin. So we're opening up America again. But Wisconsin Democrats respond that much of the earlier job loss could have been avoided if the Trump administration had a better plan to deal with COVID-19. Democrats also say some people going back to work in schools and other locations face potentially unsafe conditions. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach in La Crosse, Wisconsin. More protests overnight and more arrests in Portland, Oregon as police and demonstrators clashed. A fire started outside a police precinct in the city's north side, resulting in more arrests. Demonstrators were protesting police brutality and began marching shortly after 9 p.m. After demonstrators were warned if they entered the precinct property, they would be arrested. Some protesters began chanting, burn it down. Just after 10 p.m., a mattress was set on fire. Some of the protesters were then arrested. A wildfire burning west of Fort Collins, Colorado, grew significantly over the weekend to more than 89,000 acres. That fire only about 4% contained, but a cold front is bringing unseasonably cooler temperatures and snow in the forecast, and that could help firefighters. From member station KUNC, Desmond O'Boyle has the story. The Denver metro area north to Fort Collins is under an orange glow as pockets of ash flow through the air. The Cameron Peak fire started on August 13th. It's reached the northern tip of Rocky Mountain National Park. Paul Brukink, spokesman for the fire team, says the weather is going to help dampen the blaze, but it's not a season-ending event. We need a, a, a succession of these in a row to actually uh, put this thing out. Some areas could see a 70-degree temperature shift, and anywhere from 6 to 12 inches of snow is expected to fall over the fire. 
The Cameron Peak Fire is now the seventh largest in Colorado's recorded history. For NPR News, I'm Desmond O'Boyle in Greeley, Colorado. As Congress returns to session this week, hope appears to be dimming for another coronavirus relief measure. Talks between Democrats and the Trump administration broke off last month with no sign they'll be resuming. Recent conversations between key players have so far failed to reignite discussion on a new aid package. The latest proposal was supposed to deliver another round of $1,200 stimulus checks to many Americans. You're listening to NPR News. Whether you have a mosquito bite or eczema, scientists say it is better to relieve an itch by rubbing it instead of scratching. And now NPR's Burley McCoy reports researchers in Florida say they may have discovered why. It's hard to resist the urge to scratch an itch, but scratching can damage skin, cause pain, and even make the itching worse. So why is rubbing a better alternative? To find out, researchers at the Miami Itch Center first injected histamine into the skin of sedated mice to trigger itchiness. Then they measured what happened in itch-related nerve cells when they tried to soothe that itching with rubbing. They found that rubbing blocked nerve cells from relaying an itch sensation to the brain, similar to what happens with scratching, but without the pain or skin damage. The study appears in the Journal of Neuroscience. For NPR News, I'm Burley McCoy. A British judge has rejected a request from lawyers for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to delay his extradition hearing until next year to give his counsel more time to respond to U.S. allegations he conspired with hackers to obtain classified information. The move comes as Assange was in a London courtroom seeking to thwart the effort by prosecutors to extradite him to the U.S. to stand trial on spying charges. The U.S. has indicted the 49-year-old Assange on 18 espionage and computer misuse charges over the publication of secret U.S. documents by WikiLeaks. Assange's lawyers maintain the prosecution amounts to a politically motivated abuse of power. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, it looks like we're going to have a low of 68 tonight, high of 86 tomorrow. Cooling weather with highs in the mid to low 80s through Friday and cooling even to the 70s by this weekend. And in Sacramento, low of 55, high of 90, cooling to the mid 80s throughout next week, and in Truckee, low of 40, high of 82, cooler temperatures down to the mid-60s by Friday. No rain in the forecast. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, our state has been under two emergencies at the same time, COVID-19 and fires statewide, and now smoke, of course. How is the California Department of Water Resources safeguarding the water services that they provide Californians? Yeah, that's that's a good question because life goes on, right? Even though we're all in somewhat of a lockdown uh, to a degree, uh, we still have basic infrastructure. And, and California Department of Water Resources, they have core services. It includes what water water delivery, flood protection, dam safety, and and infrastructure maintenance. Uh, so all this stuff has to continue on a daily basis. The fires, they've resulted in several state water project facilities uh to be closed down temporarily uh, to protect public and the and the employees there from fire uh, from high fire danger. 
that is uh, has has already been started. In addition to that, Governor Newsom and the California Department of Public Health, they are requiring visitors and employees at all DWR facilities to follow very succinctly to the California Department of Public Works guidelines, which we all know what those are, right? Six feet apart, wash your hands, wear a face mask, your face covering. So uh, that's being uh, enforced. And then uh, otherwise, uh, there are critical head areas like the headquarters in Sacramento of DWR and their regional offices in Red Bluff, West Sac, Fresno, Glendale. They're all temporarily restricted, so there's limited, you know, they're, they're valving things down to only what is needed as far as people present. Uh, the Plumas County Lakes, uh, which includes Antelope Lake, Fre- uh, Frenchman Lake, Lake Davis, uh, they're supposed to finally be open. They've been closed uh, to maintain safety. And so now, after today, they're supposed to be open unless conditions have changed. I, haven't, I didn't check uh, just in the last few hours. Lake Orville's going to remain closed because of the obvious fire issues that are still uh, happening over there. So the work of DWR or Department of Water Resources, it's, you know, it's continuing because we need to uh, take precautions to safeguard these kinds of uh, infrastructures that we all rely on. So, uh, yeah, they're doing their part and you just adapt and move forward. Well, Steve, the, uh, there are many, many damaged trees in the Sierras uh, due to the, the fires. Uh, dead trees in our forest, uh, I feel they must have raised the level of wildfire intensity. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. It's correct. Uh, it's, it was depressing these past bunch of years driving through the Sierras and some of the other mountains in other, in other states and seeing the number of, of trees that have died as a result of, of drought or bark beetles or whatever the issue are is uh, our most recent droughts here in California have really created opportunities for trees to weaken and, and that's causing the bark beetles to penetrate into the trees and you can see evidence of that uh, if you notice red pitch oozing from a tree that's uh, a lot of times as a, uh, you know, a reflection of the bark beetles uh, penetrating that uh, tree to a degree that is causing harm to the tree. The bark beetles usually, they, they lay their eggs in the tree bark, and then the larvae feed off the living tissue of the tree itself. And when, when trees are healthy, they produce a lot of pitch, and the pitch is that, uh, this, that highly viscous uh, uh, ooze that, that we see uh, coming out of trees at times. And the pitch prevents the beetles from penetrating into the tree to the point of hurting the tree. But, um, you know, it, it cuts both ways because the beetles are doing a good job during normal years because they're killing the older damaged trees, the weak trees, to make room for the healthy ones to be more healthy. But the problem is when there are a lot of stressed trees, as they are now, as a result of drought, then you have the beetles uh, becoming even more successful in their lives. So their populations increase, and then they cause even more harm to the trees to the point where there's too much of a good thing going on, and now we have a lot of damage in our forests. So it's a, it's a combination of limited water, stress caused by higher temperatures, and, of course, the presence of, of a growing population of bark beetles. And that's the situation we have today. Bark beetles is one thing that we don't have a lot of control of, but 
water supply shortage during the drought is something that we can improve on. Are there actions being taken right now to build water supply strength? Of course, and uh, it's happening all over our state. But, you know, it also has its difficulties. Most areas uh, are realizing, at least here in California, that uh, as far as water supply shortage, uh, to avoid that, we need to create a diversified water portfolio. In other words, we need to find water from multiple sources. And uh, we can use, you know, as far as an, a typical example, we can use Monterey as that example. There is no one source solution, so the Monterey Peninsula is looking for new water sources. Okay, that's the issue. And they realize that there aren't any more water rights in the basin, so they've got to work with what they have. So how how are they going to do that? Well, they're getting creative. The Monterey Peninsula is adding to their existing groundwater wells several more desal source water wells. In other words, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, fresh water is lighter than salt water. So they're going to drill through the freshwater aquifers and then seal those off in the, in the annulus of the hole and go down into the saline water, the salty water, and then pump that out of the ground, treat it, and then use that water. That's their strategy. The strategy uh, that I think people are having a difficulty with is this, this uh, approach is an attempt to pump less groundwater ultimately out of the deepest aquifer. That's a good thing. You're trying to keep that, that aquifer full. And to do that, you are instead treating brackish water that's coming from somewhere else, and then you're using that instead of the water that you would otherwise pump from a deepest aquifer. It's, it's, uh, it's not well understood by the public at large down there. And so the lesson that I gather from this is it's, it's really important to educate the public on the entire set of project benefits and its vulnerabilities and then maintain a, a, a transparency, which is not always done, and also a two-way, a two-way conversations and a lot of conversations. And that way we can, we can deal with uh, correcting any misunderstandings or invalid misinformation, which is out there a lot these days, we know. And to also you know, report on the missing information, fill in the gaps, the data gaps, that ultimately will allow a project to actually stand on its own merits. That usually is, is what is missing. I think that is missing on many of the projects that are water-related in the state of California. Well, Steve, lots of information. Uh, thank you so much for uh, talking with us here at KVMR Radio. You bet. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. And you can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. Next up, we have a special report from NPR News. We have now surpassed 6.5 million cases of the coronavirus in the United States. The virus is still circulating widely, but new cases are down significantly, dropping about 20% over the last week or so. NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us, as she does on most Mondays, to talk about where we are in all this. Allison, thanks for being here. Good morning, David. So I so want to believe that these numbers are suggesting something encouraging here. I mean, yes. am, am I safe feeling a little encouraged about this decrease? <laughs> 
You know, yeah, I'd say over the last week, there have been about 35,000 cases per day documented new cases. That's a significant decrease from the 60,000 we were seeing back in July. Deaths are declining too. So yes, there are signs of improvement, but the pandemic is not behind us, right? I mean, as we head into fall, infectious disease experts say there's a good chance we'll see an increase in cases as people you know, spend more time congregating inside. And given that we don't yet have a vaccine, it's really important to remain vigilant. Well, I mean, let me ask you about that vaccine. What, what is the yeah. latest and, and what are the chances that we are going to have a vaccine that, that is effective enough anytime soon to, to make us feel better about this? You know, it's not clear how effective the vaccine will be, but here's a bit of a reality check. Anthony Fauci has tried to set expectations by saying that the vaccine may only be about 50% effective. You know, everyone hopes for a higher rate of efficacy, but in fact, the FDA has said that if a vaccine is shown to be safe and at least 50% effective, it could be approved. I mean, that's quite a reality check. I think a lot of us were thinking like it might be safe to, you know, with our loved ones, with comorbidities, we can go visit right. them. Thinking I mean, of it, it as a magic like not, bullet. Yeah. Yeah. Not that at all, it sounds like. You know, it, it's not. It means if 100 people get the vaccine, 50 of them could still end up getting infected with the virus. Now, there's still benefit there. I mean, infectious disease experts are hoping that it would be similar to the flu vaccine in terms of reducing the severity of illness, meaning that, you know, if you're a person who gets the vaccine and ends up getting sick with the virus, the hope is you won't get as sick. You know, you'd be less likely to end up in the hospital. But it's sort of too soon to say the extent to which this will be the case. Um, the other reality check, David, is that lots of people, the majority majority of people need to be vaccinated in order for us to reach a sort of herd immunity to this virus. Well, and that, that seems like a real potential problem because you have a lot of Americans saying that they're very hesitant to get a COVID-19 vaccine whenever it is approved. Is, is that changing or are efforts to get more people on board effective? You know, an NPR PBS Marist poll found back in August that more than a third of Americans, so 35%, say they won't get vaccinated when a vaccine becomes available. And in recent weeks, David, with concerns about political pressure to have a vaccine before the November presidential election, you know, it seems that just it has made more people hesitant. I spoke to Robert Wynn about this. He's a physician in Richmond, Virginia. He's been advising faith leaders at a number of black churches. He says he definitely hears this hesitance in the African-American community he's a part of, he says he's not at all surprised that black patients are among the most reluctant to participate in clinical trials of the vaccine. And, you know, this is built on a history of having almost no to little trust to begin with. I mean, if you think back to, you know, the United States public health study in 1932, otherwise the Tuskegee study, I think that that history now on top of an eroding sense of trust and an eroding sense of where you can get accurate information is really adding to a not an illogical <laughs> um, sort of mistrust and enhanced distrust of the system. And he says this is really very unfortunate, right? His take is that this distrust is very widespread, well beyond the African-American community. So the message that he's trying to get out is this. Do we need a vaccine? We absolutely need a vaccine. A good vaccine does two things. It prevents people from getting the, you know, the infection and it reduces the symptoms if you get it. But now there is resistance and mistrust and distrust about taking even a good vaccine at this moment. And so I think it's just it has been the most disheartening couple of weeks for me. You know, he says there's just such a loss of trust.
Yeah, a loss of trust and, and entrenched distrust. Um, yes, I mean, c- yes. Can, can trust be rebuilt on something like this? I mean, there's an attempt to do this. Nine companies, including the CEOs of AstraZeneca, Moderna, Pfizer, signed a safety pledge last week promising not to submit their vaccine candidates to the FDA for review until their safety and efficacy is documented, really nailed down. But Robert Wynn says, you know, there's this sentiment out there that no one wants to volunteer to be first. They want to see how the vaccine works for others. He says he hears this a lot. It might work but let it work on other people first, and then we might decide to jump in. And I think the unfortunate thing is that if we all just wait for somebody else to get it done, it just delays us getting a, a vaccine that works, which means more people are going to get sick, means more people are going to die. I mean, that's just the fact of how this all works out and plays out. Now, the first group to be offered a vaccine will likely be you know, essential workers, healthcare workers. So clearly trust within that community is key. Can I just ask you, I mean, this this is something we've been covering at NPR a lot. I mean, the situation in college campuses that have been sure. reopening. You had some that reopened and then had to close for in-person learning. I mean, really right. quickly, these COVID cases shot up. What are we looking at right now? You know, I think it's highly variable. There have been more than 80,000 cases reported on campuses. I spoke to Aaron Carroll about this at Indiana University. He's a physician. He says the infection rate in dorms there is quite low, and there's actually no evidence of spread inside classrooms where students are distanced and masked. But in the Greek system, so sororities and fraternities, there are very high rates of infection. It depends week to week. We have some fraternities where I think it's gotten above 80 percent, you know, where it's very likely that soon all of them will be infected if they are not already. Uh, Overall, we've had no significant illnesses, no hospitalizations at this point. But the spread in our Greek system has been significantly higher than we would like. So this is not an environment where it's easy to stop the spread. In Paris, Allison Arbery. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, David. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Navajo Nation will participate in a COVID-19 vaccine trial. Tribal leaders announced Friday the approval of a Pfizer vaccine trial at clinics on the reservation based on a volunteer basis. The study will be led by John Hopkins Center for American Indian Health. Enrollment will begin in mid-September for people between ages 18 to 85 who have not had a prior COVID-19 infection. Participants will receive two doses of the vaccine and be monitored for a two-year period. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez will host a virtual town hall on September 21st with top U.S. health official Dr. Anthony Fauci to discuss COVID-19 and trial vaccines. As of Sunday, the Navajo Nation reported eight new cases of COVID-19, bringing the total number of positive cases to 9,977. In the last week, the tribe's data showed fewer numbers of positive cases after months of lockdowns, curfews, and other public health orders. The National Congress of American Indians is hosting virtual tribal leader roundtables this week with members of Congress. The Tribal Unity Impact Days are usually held in Washington, D.C. for tribal leaders to meet with lawmakers and federal officials. 
The online event is intended for tribal leaders to be able to engage with lawmakers about issues facing Indian country before the end of the current session of Congress. Wednesday afternoon, seven members of the House are scheduled to take part in discussions. And Thursday afternoon, five senators and three more representatives are expected to take part in the roundtable. COVID-19, the census, health care, housing, education, environmental protections are among issues leaders across Indian country have been addressing in recent months with U.S. lawmakers. Funeral services are planned Friday in North Dakota for Dr. David Gipp, a leader in Native American higher education. Gipp was well known for his more than three decades of work as president of United Tribes Technical College. He was also a community leader and Native rights advocate. Gipp was instrumental in national efforts to establish policies and laws for tribal colleges and universities to gain recognition and support. UTTC became accredited, offering two- and four-year programs, technical education and workforce training under his leadership. Gibb passed away last week at his home, surrounded by family, following a lengthy illness. Native American environmental advocates in New Mexico are urging U.S. lawmakers to strengthen environmental policies. Democratic members of the House Natural Resources Committee are hosting discussions on environmental issues. Last week, they held a virtual environmental justice tour focused on New Mexico. Native advocates say resource extractions have contaminated sacred places and medicines and have had health impacts on people. Leona Morgan, a Navajo grassroots advocate, urged lawmakers to fight proposed nuclear waste storage, continue mine site cleanup, and oppose new resource extractions in the state. When you're living on stolen land, the colonizer tends to make the rules as as they would have them. And so today, um, some of the impacts um, we've been living with for decades, um, for generations actually, and they've only been highlighted because of the recent pandemic. We have not only dealt with the uranium mining, but also coal mining in, 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 in and around the Navajo Nation um, and the contamination to water resources and use of water for extractive industry has really um, impacted our people. Legislation was introduced in Congress this summer to seek environmental justice aimed at underserved communities and communities of color. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Sanoski Chambers Law Firm, championing tribal sovereignty and defending Native American rights since 1976 with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. As an American Indian or Alaska Native, you help elders, young people, and Native businesses when you exercise your right to vote November 3rd. Your vote makes a difference in Washington, D.C. and at home. Go to nativenews.net for more information. Brought to you by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino, Placerville, and this is the Monday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. 
Coming up at 6.30 tonight, we have this week's edition of Wings. That's the Women's International News Service. And at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. COVID-19 has been a doubly deadly disaster for millions of Americans, destroying both life and livelihoods. But one of the most heartening responses to the crisis has come from the least expected place, corporate executive suites. This spring, numerous CEOs made headlines by showing some class solidarity. If we're going to wallop our workers because of a pandemic, these bosses told media interviewers, the least we can do is cut our own salaries. Yes, all in this together. Only, not really. An analytical firm looked at the books of nearly all U.S. major corporations, finding that a mere fraction had made any cuts to senior executive pay, and the few that did only made little nicks in the boss's take-home rather than real cuts. The trick is that these sacrifices only applied to official salaries. They are the tiniest part of a chief executive's compensation, which mostly is made up of bonuses, stock options, etc., For example, United Airlines, which is presently zeroing out the paychecks of 36,000 workers, docked its CEO's salary by nearly a third. Sounds like a real gesture, but that works out to less than 3% of the $22 million he's getting in total pay. So middle-income workers get the boot, while a boss still has his job, gets more than $21 million in annual pay, and claims bragging rights for being an ethical corporate chieftain. The ethical crime here is not merely in the cynical fudging of numbers, but that even in this unprecedented time of national crisis, the elites who've converted capitalism into a system of plutocratic plunder still feel entitled to cheat. This is Jim Hightower saying, if a nation's economic system doesn't care about shared sacrifice and hard times, why should the majority who pay the price and are denied the gains care about that economic system? Hightower's commentaries are brought to you by the Hightower Lowdown, the monthly newsletter with Hightower's take on what Wall Street and Washington are up to. For information, visit HightowerLowdown.org. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. For KVMR's news team, thanks for listening, folks.